Father in heaven, we thank you for all that you are to us. Again, as we open your word and and see something of your greatness and your majesty and the marvelous provision you've made on our behalf, we cannot help but take the time to give forth a sacrifice of praise, even the fruit of our lips, lift our voices in adoration of you who are the living God. Father, I would just pray that that which we say tonight might be pleasing to you. We acknowledge, Lord, that more than anything else, we want the praise of God and not merely the praise of men. We pray that that will be the attitude of each one of us and that we'll learn how to invoke that praise. We'll also learn how to praise you as we ought and give back to you even that which you give to us because you're the one that's worthy. We'll praise you for what we know you're going to do. In Jesus' name, amen. We're talking in these days about changing life's patterns. There are a good many things, really, that uh, were ingrained into our thinking, ingrained into our life as unbelievers. Um, or even after you became a believer, habits formed that are really a part of the unbeliever's world, but occasionally creep into the lives of those that know Jesus Christ in a personal way. It's not an uncommon thing at all for a person to be almost totally aware of some of these things because they're, they're so common, they're so ingrained. I think that probably one of the things that is like this is, is earthly thinking, worldly thinking, as opposed to heavenly thinking. It's a very difficult transition for a believer to suddenly begin to think in terms of his value being out there somewhere in the eternity in the eternal realm, rather than merely the here and now that is so much a part of our our uh, uh, thinking if we are a worldly person. Uh, there are many many others, and we've been talking about some of them. Some of them that are uh, clearly defined in Scripture and. Uh, we want to continue in that vein. Uh, we've talked uh, about pride and about presumption and uh, about uh, uh, perfunctoriousness, mechanical routine, and uh, some of these other things, procrastination we studied last week. Just some of these things that uh, we need to understand and then we need to see if we can't change the pattern to a more biblical a life rather than those old habits from the old life. The one I want to talk about tonight is um, one that, that you maybe don't think of a lot as a Christian, although uh, you probably have heard a lot of messages uh, relating to this particular subject. It may not have been defined in exactly this way, but it's the idea of Phariseeism. Phariseeism. Now, someone has said that he that's all wrapped up in himself makes a very small package. And uh, probably that idea of being wrapped up in oneself is really a pretty good description of the Pharisees, particularly the scribal Pharisees, that Jesus Christ encountered during his time uh, here upon the earth. There's a great danger... Uh, at any period in our life, whether it's before salvation or after salvation, a great danger that in our self-evaluation of our assets and our liabilities, we will be just dishonest enough to think of ourselves more highly than we ought to think. And um, not thinking of that only in terms of pride, which we had talked about, that is the independent kind of spirit that we uh, so often have in our lives, but thinking of it more from the standpoint of a kind of a self-righteousness uh, that uh, uh, really causes us to look down the nose at some others. Another word you could use is the, uh, the word uh, prejudice. We could as easily have titled this message prejudice. 
because there is a, a, a tremendous and grave danger of prejudice in the lives of believers. And really, the Pharisees were guilty, truly guilty, of prejudice. We find so very often uh, the, the idea and the concept in Scripture that we are to uh, never look down on another person. And um, yet we do, don't we? Um, I suppose that uh, if a, a person right now this minute uh, came walking into this room dressed in something other than what we would consider ordinary dress, uh, they would attract a lot of attention. And uh, there would be at least a percentage of even this very godly crowd who would look at such a person and say, I wonder who that is, simply because they are different. And the thing that we often do is mentally we put people down because we have, whether we like it or not, a sort of a superiority attitude that somehow or another, by some kind of a definition which somehow is in my subconscious, I must be better than that person because I'm dressed better, I drive a better car, act a little better with other people, uh, am uh, a certain color or a, from a certain country uh, or uh, from a certain class of people from a certain side of the tracks or whatever. Um, it's a very difficult thing to shake that Somehow or another, it's drilled into our hearts and minds. I suppose that one of the great lessons that came to me during the, the entire uh, civil rights uh, thing, um, I being uh, very commonly uh, acquainted with uh, a number of blacks through the years, particularly blacks from Africa, uh, going, going to school with uh, young men from Ethiopia and and uh, Nigeria and places like that, and I, um, that was true even in high school. I went to uh, Prairie Bible Institute High School, and we had kids from all over the world. And to even think of uh, uh, thinking any differently concerning a black person was something that was unheard of in my, in my mind. I also uh, was from the Northwest, which uh, at that period of time was really, was really no problem. And during the time where there was so much turmoil in the South, uh, there was so much in the newspapers that was telling us all of these things that were going on in terms of what they called, rightly called, prejudice. I, I couldn't understand. Uh, I had a hard time as a young person trying to sort that out. How in the world could people be Christians and tr make that kind of distinction between men when the scripture is so absolutely clear on that subject. I know right away, especially if you're from the South, uh, some would say, well, you just don't understand the problem in the South. And I admit, I probably don't fully understand the problem in the South, but I can't understand the problem with people who are believers in Jesus Christ who will send missionaries to Africa to reach black people who have anything at all in the way of prejudice against a black person. I have absolutely a a terrible problem with that, primarily because Scripture tells us you don't prefer one, one above another. That there is no caste system in the Christian life. And when you know Jesus Christ as Savior, we come, you know, they, someone has said that the cross may have been on a hill, but at the foot of the cross is level ground. And uh, the rich and the poor and the black and the white and whatever odd color you might want to find those people will all gather under the same terms. They're saved the same way. They're received into the same heaven. And there's no prejudice in heaven. And it certainly demonstrates a tremendous amount of carnality when people profess to be Christians and they can have prejudice against anyone because of race, because of color, because of the way they dress, because of what side of the tracks they come from or anything else. And I think that it's, a, it's an absolute shame that we as Christians sometimes fall into that habit of prejudice. Because what re what's required in order to build that prejudice is 
we have to put ourselves up. And when we put ourselves up, that makes others be down. And there's a serious problem. Because there's no up. There's no way you can put yourself up. You don't exalt yourself. God will do the exalting. And when he does it, he takes the humble and exalts them. And then constantly reminds them that he put them there. And so you see, Phariseeism, really, that we despise. Because we go through the scripture and we see these things. Phariseeism is something that, that we learn uh, to, uh, to, to, to hate because the New Testament was so very clear uh, about, the, about the subject, and Christ said, woe unto the Pharisees, woe unto the scribes, and so on. Now, the old life was marked by that kind of an attitude. When I hear that unsaved people, even during that civil rights thing, when I heard that there were people in the South who hated blacks, I had no problem with that. I, I would expect that. There are people in the South that would hate me if they knew me. Uh, there are people in the North that do hate me, you know. Uh, and uh, unbelievers, you, you expect unbelievers to be prejudiced. That doesn't make it right, but it certainly is common. And so you rather expect it. And it's not too, it's not too unusual to step into a crowd of people uh, and hear a conversation go that way where unbelievers are talking and very quickly pick up that these people are indeed prejudiced. Society has put a little pressure on them so they're not maybe as vocal about it as they once were, but nevertheless, that's, that's a problem. And uh, yet, with a believer in Jesus Christ, when he becomes a Christian, again, it's one of these things that he kind of carries over into the new life. And... Uh, Probably, many times, when you make statements that, are uh, that, that show prejudice, uh, when you, when you uh, do things that uh, exhibit your prejudice, uh, or when you think things that uh, are prejudiced, you probably don't give it a whole lot of thought. I know that there's a lot of people who grew up in their early years saying things about certain classes of people uh, in a disparaging manner. And uh, when they became a Christian, they just commonly said the same thing, felt the same way, acted the same way toward some individuals. And if you were to say something to them about, well, you know, what you said really wasn't very nice for a Christian to say about another brother, they would probably say, well, you know, if you had my bringing up, uh, or if you'd lived where I lived, or if you had uh, had the experiences I've had, you'd feel that way too. And you kind of cast it off as though it's really not too important. What I'm saying to you is the attitude of superiority over other people is sin, plain and simple. And we need to recognize it for what it is, confess it for what it is, and see if we can't allow the Holy Spirit to reshape our life where we understand that there can be no prejudice. Um, this is all by way of introduction before we get into the text, but I, I just have to throw this in. And it's simply this, that the Apostle Paul dealt as a middleman in probably one of the worst eras of prejudice in the Christian church. That's the first century. Because the Jews who hated Gentiles and despised them unless they would proselyte and go through all the ritual of Israel, were saved. And the prejudice came right over with them. And they, they couldn't understand. I mean, they, 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 the gospel came uh, to Pentecost. Uh, at Pentecost, the city of Jerusalem... And uh, virtually all of those that were saved were uh, Jews, some of them second generation uh, um, from other countries, from Greece and from uh, various places in Macedonia and along the, ba the Caspian uh, Sea and along the Black Sea and places like that. That is, they spoke those languages. They had been dispersed by Alexander the Great, but they were still Jews. And they were in Jerusalem for uh, the day of Pentecost, and that's when they heard the wonderful words of God in their own staccato languages. 
And uh, that's when they uh, responded to the gospel, 3,000 at one time, 5,000 at another time. Uh, so there's 8,000 Jews who then scattered many of them to their various places. A very little teaching at that point. And uh, the people in Jerusalem that remained there, uh, they had designs on having a Jewish church. Could there be anything else? I mean, after all, you don't let Gentiles into a Jewish club. And so the, the problem increased and increased and increased, particularly as the gospel went to the Gentiles. And as the, the gospel was, was uh, proclaimed to the Gentiles, now you had a Gentile church and you had a Jewish church. And there was a tremendous danger that it remained that way, and that would have been far worse than even the denominations that we have today if there was a Jewish church and a Gentile church. Peter was no better than the rest of them. Peter was up to his old tricks. Again, the old life coming out in the new, uh, the new era. He was the one, of course, that the Lord sent to Cornelius' house to preach the gospel to the Gentiles for the first time. It wasn't Paul who preached to the Gentiles the first time. It was Peter. But when Peter was in town and the Judaizers were coming through, he'd been eating with Gentiles and, and fellowshipping with Gentiles because he knew that's what he ought to do. But when the, the Judaizers, who had been so critical, these people would be people that were uh, a part of the church and yet at the same time were being very critical of anybody that had anything to do with Gentiles. Peter withdrew from the Gentiles, ate all his meals with nothing but Jews. And when Paul found out about it, he bawled Peter out. And something, Paul, the newer Christian, bawling the older veteran Christian that had walked with the Lord Jesus Christ, he bawled him out. He rebuked him. And, he, and when he wrote about it, he said, I rebuked Peter and he deserved it. Read that in the book of Galatians. Why did he rebuke him? Because his Pharisaical attitude, that's why. He was saying, I am a Jew. And I am going to, at least for the sake of appearances, going to be with Jews. Uh, when the Judaizers get out of town and they cool down, I'll, I'll you know, it's like uh, uh, some of the people during the Civil War, they were, they were, uh, very good often to their slaves and privately would say, I don't believe in slavery. Uh, but when the war broke out, they didn't dare say that anymore. So they just kind of uh, played the middle of the road as much as they could until they saw which side won, you know. And that's really what Peter was doing. Instead of coming out and out when the Judaizers came, confronting the Judaizers, and saying, I don't care what you fellows say, with the authority of an apostle, I'm putting it straight right now. There's no prejudice in the church of Jesus Christ. There had better not be. Peter pulled back and said, but, you know, under the conditions, I have to be careful. I've got a testimony to maintain, you know. And he did it all in the name of the Lord until Paul came along and rebuked him. That's the kind of prejudice that the church had at the very beginning. And they had to settle that once and for all. There will not be a Gentile church and a Jewish church. There will be, no, there will be fellowship across the board on all levels with Jew and Gentile alike. I'll tell you, it was a very, very tense day. Who knows what division there might be in the church of Jesus Christ even to this day had that not taken place. So that's what we're talking about when we're talking here about Pharisaism. Let me say a word about the subject of Pharisaism. What I'm talking about here is not the only approach that you can have to this subject. Uh, there are other things that you might talk about in terms of the Pharisees. Uh, for instance, uh, you could talk about the curiosity of those Pharisees as they inquired of both John the Baptist and, and Jesus in the early ministry of both there was the punctuation of the many questions of the Pharisees, asking them, testing them, trying to find out where they were coming from, uh, really to see whether or not they were on the Pharisaical side or on the Roman side or on the Herodian side or on the Sadducean side or on some other side. And so they poked a lot of questions at uh, both the Lord Jesus and John the Baptist. And you could go through... And just, just an interesting study for you in private would be to go through the Synoptic Gospels and categorize the questions of the Pharisees, just showing 
their curiosity and then showing how the curiosity turned very quickly in the last year to hostility toward the Lord Jesus Christ. The questions became more and more hostile as time went on. You could also follow the various passages that speak of the customs of the Pharisees. There's a lot about Phariseeism uh, that uh, comes under that category, the customs or the uh, the traditions that they had that uh, they gave more more uh, attention to than even the Torah itself. Uh, they were the traditions that Christ said were not of God but were of men. Or you could you could have a study in human nature on the craftiness of the Pharisees, uh, showing their conflict with the, the Lord Jesus and uh, uh, all the way from the time of the conspiracy uh, with their hated enemies, the Herodians, to the bribing of the soldiers at the tomb to get them to say that the disciples had stolen the body. Uh, these, these fellows were, were, were really uh, crafty and deceitful, and uh, it would really be a, a short course for you in uh, religious deceit, of uh, which there's so much today if you were to study that aspect of the Pharisees. Or you could uh, study the subject from the standpoint of their condemnation. Uh, Christ in numerous places placed woes upon them, placed con uh, condemnation upon them, called them a generation of vipers, said that they were of their father, the devil, and the works of their father they would do. He condemned them for their tradition and for their deceit and for their hypocrisy and for their, their neglect of the very law that they quoted so often. Those are some of the things that would be involved in their condemnation. Or you could, you could study their corruption. Uh, we should say at this juncture that in terms of the Pharisees, you have to realize Christ dealing with the Pharisees in the city of Jerusalem were primarily with the, the Sanhedrin and the scribal Pharisees as well as the Sadducees. And uh, there probably and undoubtedly were a good many Pharisees who were very commendable. That is, they were doing really the best they knew how to do trying to do something that was impossible. They were trying to bring all of life under the law of God and live it. And the law, keeping the law was impossible. God knew it when he gave it. That's why he had to provide for sacrifice and redemption. And there were many Pharisees that would be just as sincere as could be. Nicodemus, of course, was a case in point. Nicodemus was one who indeed was a Pharisee. But nevertheless, he came inquiring of the Lord Jesus Christ. He was serious in his questions, and he became a secret believer for a while, and then after the cross, an open believer. Whatever happened to him, we don't know. There are traditions concerning him, but nothing substantial. But nevertheless, he no doubt was a true believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. And there were many Pharisees that came to know the Lord in the book of Acts. Many of the priests came to know the Lord. Many of the Pharisees, uh, many of the scribes. In fact, some of the Pharisees that came to know the Lord were some of those that were the leaders in Judaism in trying to bring the Gentiles under the law, as you well could imagine. But they were genuinely saved. So you have to say that because we so often think of the, the Pharisees as a group and uh, think of them as all bad. Uh, there were certain select ones, particularly those close to the Sanhedrin, uh, that had become very corrupt. But you could study the corruption of these men that Jesus Christ encountered, their misuse of their position, their violation of the temple, their greed for gain, the blindness of heart that allowed them to commit the ultimate crime, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ on the cross. All of those things could be uh, talked about in terms of Phariseeism. Another thing that you could talk about is uh, their conceit as they prayed loud prayers to be heard of men, public demonstration of their self-styled uh, spirituality to be seen of men. Uh, wherever people were, they wanted them to see how spiritual they really were. So they made broad the borders of their garment and made uh, large phylacteries uh, so that they might uh, have a, a, priest, a pretentious type of an attitude toward the people. The people would see them, they would, they would admire them for their religiosity, and that, of course, was their conceit. So all of those things are things that we could, we could talk about. But I thought that tonight we would take one simple little story and try to draw from it some of these things that relate to this matter of prejudice and this matter of, of putting ourselves up and others down, because this was one of the hallmarks of the Pharisees, and as we said, something that was even carried into Christianity after 
these Pharisees and others, other Jews became believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. I want you to turn then to the Gospel of Luke. The Gospel of Luke, chapter 18, the first eight verses, um, of course, is talking about prayer, really setting us up for what is coming in terms of a particular kind of prayer, beginning in verse 9. But in verses 1 through 8, uh, there is the story of the unjust judge and the story of the widow who importuned him. And of course, the, uh, the uh, picture that is painted for us there is that uh, we in prayer should storm the gates of heaven. If you please bother God uh, with our prayers, I think it's one aspect of prayer that's greatly neglected. I don't think we bother God nearly enough. I don't think we storm the gates of heaven with our prayers the way we ought. And uh, yet we're told here uh, that if the unjust judge would uh, eventually capitulate to the widow's pleas, uh, then uh, certainly a God who is just would capitulate to those that he dearly loves. Uh, the story in con the study in contrast in that little parable is uh, really outstanding. But right on the heels of that, Christ deals with the problem of Phariseeism as it relates particularly to a person's prayer life. And it says in verse 9 that he also told this parable to certain ones who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. Now you see right there where we get the idea of prejudice. The whole purpose of the story was to zero in on a particular group of people. And that particular group of people were those who had put themselves up and in the process put others down. Time in the ministry of the Lord Jesus. Prejudice. And it doesn't even tell us precisely who they are. I'm inclined to think that at least some of them were among the twelve. I think that probably some of them were some of those disciples, you know, that when the children tried to crowd around the Lord Jesus Christ, they w tried to turn them away because somehow or another, for some dumb reason, they were prejudiced against kids. I think that probably some of them uh, were those disciples who had tried to place themselves above the other disciples uh, by specifically asking the Lord Jesus and asking their mother to talk to the Lord Jesus about a place of prominence in the coming kingdom. Uh, I think that probably uh, some of it was targeted at uh, those in the multitudes uh, who uh, were despising some others in the multitudes. Because by this time in the ministry of the Lord Jesus, people were coming from the four corners of the earth, literally. They were coming from out of Jewish territory, and many of them would not be Jews at all. And so as, that, as a result of that, I'm inclined to think that it probably was targeting some of those individuals. It no doubt, without question, was targeting at least some of the Pharisees who had what we could call today a Pharisaical attitude about this whole thing. And uh, it uses a Pharisee as an example of this Phariseeism, this attitude that is so wrong. Now again, it says in verse 9, he also told this parable to certain ones who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax gatherer. The Pharisee stood and was praying thus to himself, God, I thank thee that I am not like other people. Now that's a prejudiced prayer if I ever heard one. Swindlers unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax gatherer. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. But the tax gatherer, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other, for everyone who exalts himself shall be humbled, but he who humbles himself shall be exalted. Now, the danger of Phariseeism, the kind of Phariseeism that is so self-righteous, 
that it despises and belittles others is really the thing that the Lord Jesus Christ is after here. It's a form of prejudice. It puts one person up and the other down. It's a form of pride, really, but it's the kind of pride that looks down the nose at other individuals and despises them. A person who is different than you in any way whatsoever, and you recoil when you, when you see such an individual. Uh, suppose, as an example in this uh, highly middle-class community, uh, and middle-class church, really, Supposing we, we suddenly had an influx of, of dozens and dozens of very, very poor people. Very poor people. People who were obviously poor. Uh, kind of persons with holes in their shoes and, and uh, only one suit, and that's raggedy. You know, what would be the attitude? Well, the chances are pretty good that the attitude, at least some people, would be, why are we getting so many of those kind of people? What are we doing wrong to attract that kind of an element? I sat by a guy the other day, you can hear someone say, and he smelled so bad I couldn't concentrate on the message. Oh, well, you know, some people don't understand because they really, honestly, can't afford things like perfume and deodorant and all of the rest of it. As strange as it may seem, there are some people who do not have access to uh, showers every day like you do. Before you, someone told me a long time ago, early in my ministry, they said, when a crabby person, when you meet a crabby person, don't assume that they are ungodly until you find out whether they have bunions. All right? I mean, the most spiritual person in the world with sore feet is probably going to seem crabby because there are certain things that make people... I, I had a woman in a congregation a number of years ago who, because of a weakness of her, of her facial muscles, could not smile. It was impossible for her to smile. And it broke my heart one time in overhearing someone saying, you know, that poor woman is the saddest woman I've ever seen. Her heart bubbled with joy when you got to know her, but she had an inability to smile. In fact, she was as deadpan as you could find. She just didn't have the control of her facial muscles through a kind of a partial paralysis, but it didn't look like paralysis. You know, if, if a person has had a stroke and looks like that, then people, of course, understand a little better. But a person who, who never smiles, you tell her something funny and she doesn't laugh at your joke. You know, uh, she, she's unable to show that kind of an expression. And, and people were prejudiced against that kind of a thing. Isn't, that, isn't it strange how dumb we can be sometimes? So before you, before you judge another person, walk five miles in his moccasins. Find out really what he's been through. There are people who, who have the marks of sadness all over their face because they've gone through great trial. We understand something? The, the scripture makes clear, and I will dispute those who say otherwise uh, due to the fact of a very recent study that I've made on the whole matter of physical beauty. The Lord Jesus Christ was a handsome man, all right? He was a handsome man, but he had so, such strain and sorrow during the course of his ministry, and especially at the cross, that he was contorted so that his visage was marred above all men, Isaiah said. His visage is marred above all men to the place that instead of being the rose of Sharon, the lily of the valley, the beauty that he is described to be, both in his character and in his person, the Lord Jesus Christ was, was made ugly for us, if you please. He was marred. He was twisted out of shape. He was contorted, particularly as he died on the cross for our sins, so that people looking at him recoiled in horror. They couldn't even look upon him 
was that bad, all right? And I think that sometimes we fail to realize what intense suffering will do to people in terms of their visage, in terms of the way they look. And before you know whether the person indeed is uh, away from God and, and marked with all kinds of guilt and all kinds of other things that would mar them, Find out if maybe they've gone through the trials of Job. I know you know people that have gone through great trials and somehow have maintained a smile. But there are others that their disposition is not such. And as they go through trials, it leaves its mark. Don't be too quick to judge them. Scripture says, and this is a sad warning to all of us, judge not that you be not judged. For with the same judgment with which you judge, you also shall be judged. You want to say, okay, uh, um, only those that are happy are getting to heaven. Only those who smile all the time are getting to heaven. Only those that, uh, that are um, uh, a certain color are going to get to heaven. Guess what? You're going to set that kind of a standard for judgment. God's judgment is going to be even more rigid on you. He's going to remind you of it when you stand before the judgment seat of Christ. He said, by the way, remember when you said that uh, people didn't smile didn't get to heaven? Well, I've got on my record here a whole lot of times you didn't smile. Shall I let you in? <laughs> the same judgment which you judge others, he is going to judge you. You better be very careful about things like that. Prejudice has no place in the life of a believer. And so... It says in verse 9 that he told this parable to certain ones who trusted themselves that they were righteous. They had such a high opinion of themselves that they viewed others with contempt. Now whenever you begin to think that you're something, then you're always going to look down your nose at others. It's just kind of an automatic response. I want you to look with me for a moment. Just go away from this little story uh, to Romans chapter 12 just for a moment. Romans chapter 12. In Romans 12, you have, of course, the, the word of uh, consecration in verses 1 and 2. In verse 3, though, it goes on to another thought connected to it, connected to the dedicated life, but now talking about the body of believers. And it says, for through the grace given unto me, a beautiful way to start, because Paul is going to be talking here about the fact that God gives a measure to each man. Uh, he, he has a special task in mind for each individual, and therefore he gives certain things to one individual, certain things to another individual, certain assets, certain liabilities, all of which contributes as the body works together. All right? And so he's saying, I'm saying this not because I'm anything, but through the grace that is given unto me, I say to every man among you, not to think of himself more highly than the... Uh, uh, i got to read it, I'm quoting it from the King James and reading it from the New American Standard. That's a terrible habit I have. Uh, I say to every man among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment. Notice all the thinks there. He's not to think more highly than he ought to think, but he is to think as though to have sound judgment. Uh, what what uh, really, uh, the, the use of words here is, uh, implies to us is this, that if you have an idea that you're better than someone else, you're a little bit crazy. The word sober here translated sound judgment. Uh, is the word that's translated a sound mind. It has a healthy mind. It means you're not a lunatic. It means you're not nuts. But if you think of yourself more highly than you ought to think, if you literally overthink, look at your assets, look at your liabilities, and uh, say as little, who was it, uh, little Jack Horner, what a good boy am I. <laughs> If you say that, with, him, with the idea in mind, I am good and someone else is not so good, then you've got a problem. You've got a serious problem because you're a little crazy. All right? 
So he said, as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. We operate in our Christian life. We walk by faith and not by sight. And God has allotted to each one a measure. A measure of living the Christian life in a particular way. For then, he goes on and says, for just as we have many members in one body, and all members do not have the same function, reminding us God made us different for a purpose. I want you to understand something right here in terms of this matter of prejudice. If a person has, is dark-complected, whatever that can mean from a person who's uh, uh, lightly dark to a person who's as black as a good friend of mine in Nigeria that his face literally shines when he's so black. Um, it doesn't make any difference. I can say this unequivocally. He is the color skin that he is because God made him that way in the purpose and design of God because God knows precisely what his plan is for that individual. And he can do it better as a black man or as a, as a man who's brown or a man who's red or a man who's yellow. He can do it better that way than he ever could if his skin was all white. If God allowed you to be born in Europe, it's because in the providence of God, the abilities that you learned in European society and in European school are designed in a special way for the future ministry God has for you. Now, you may not ever be able to figure it all out as to how it all works, but I'll guarantee you that when you get to glory, you're going to say to God, well, why in the world was I born in this place? Why in the world was I born into this kind of a family? Why was I, why was I born in this kind of a society? God's going to be able to tell you. And you're going to scratch your head in heaven and say, Oh my goodness, was I ever dumb. I spent years resenting my background. Wishing I was somebody I wasn't. And now I realize that God could never have made me what he was, what I am, had it not been for that background. It's a strange sort of a thing, you know. Uh, I look around at, uh, used to look around, I have to admit that this is something that's well behind me now, but look around at a lot of my colleagues who have had far better education than I have had. And uh, I look at that, and I, I used to, and I, I'd say to myself, why in the world? You know, God could have just as easily, well, God's so rich, you know, he could have just as easily made it possible for me to have some of the advantages that others have had. Why not? And yet, you know, as time went on, and every time I tried to get back and get some more schooling, and God just shut door after door after door after door. And uh, there came a time in my life where I began to say, you know, I shouldn't have to apologize for that. This is the way God led me. And he's a sovereign God. He's in control of this. He could have made it otherwise. Lord knows I was willing to do what he wanted me to do. And I'm certain that I, that I didn't make any major bad decision along the way. You know, running out of money when you're in school and uh, not having any resource or anybody to help you and uh, not being able to find, not being able to get a job, uh, you know, actually, you can't blame that on anybody but God because all the circumstances were such that you, it would seem as though that it, would have, that, that it would have been easy to do those things, but it wasn't. My parents didn't have any money. I didn't have any money. I didn't get any kind of an inheritance. You know, all of those things. And when I went out walking the streets from the time school was out until, the, until dark time, walking the streets of St. Paul, Minnesota, looking for a job, knocking on doors, putting applications into hundreds of places, and not having a single person say, I can get you a job. Putting up storm windows and all of that kind of thing just to get bus money to get to the places where I can look for a job. And God just shut a door. That's all there is to it. 
I look back on it now, and you know, I, my, my early years of ministry were shaped right after that, when I had to leave school, God opened doors to ministry. And when he opened doors to ministry, that began to shape my whole ministry. Not only that, but I found my wife. And Lord knows I wouldn't want to change that, you know. So, you know, who knows what would have happened if I had been somewhere else and uh, hadn't been in Billings, Montana, right when she was there. See? I just look back at that and the intricate nature of it. God knew precisely what he wanted me to be and what he wanted to do through me. And there comes a point in a person's life where he can relax and say, God really knows what he's doing. And he made me like this. And he caused these hindrances. Paul had a thorn in the flesh. But God knew what he was doing in making him that way. Now, having said that, though, let's turn the tables. If you happen to be a person who has an earned doctorate or two or three, don't look upon the person who only has a trade school education as though he's somehow inferior. If the man loves the Lord and is serving the Lord with his whole heart, that man is as, as significant in the kingdom of God as any person with all of the education in the world. And the, the person who has had no education by the same token should not, should be careful not to be proud of his humility and look upon the person who has all these degrees and can talk about Plato and, and, uh, and talk about Socrates and, and quote Shakespeare by the hour as though he's some kind of an odd creature. See? The fact is that what the Bible is teaching is we're all on this even level. And if we, if we have an attitude of superiority, then we are like the Pharisees. Now, the, the text goes on, of course, and talks about uh, spiritual gifts and uh, the, the exercise of spiritual gifts. But then it comes down in verse 16 and puts a capper on it by saying, Be of the same mind toward one another. That's very, pretty clear, isn't it? Be of the same mind one toward another. Do not be haughty in mind. Don't get puffed up about this. But associate, notice, associate with who? The lowly. Associate with those that under ordinary circumstances you would look down on. Okay? Make a point of doing that. Because it's a command. And don't be wise in your own estimation. Now that goes right back to that idea of thinking yourself more highly than you ought to think. You have no business doing that. What's more, then of course, never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men, if possible, so far as depends on you. Be at peace with how many men? All. Never take revenge and so on and so forth. Now, that's, that principle is the principle we want to have in mind when we go to passages like James where it tells, tells you uh, don't uh, love the chief place, don't, when you walk into the room, don't you dare walk to the head table as though you belong there. You take the lowly chair. If they want to move you to the head table, let them do it. But don't you do it. And what's more, you're sitting in a meeting and a man walks in who is obviously of a different caste system than yours your attitude toward him, James tells us, is really your attitude toward God. And if you despise him, you're really despising God. And who knows? Though James doesn't say this, the book of Hebrews does. He may be an angel, unawares. You never know. When you might be entertaining one of God's very special chosen ones. In the church where Gaius was, John the Apostle wrote Third John to Gaius to commend him for all that he had done, but also to tell him, don't worry about a man by the name of Diotrephes who loves to have the preeminence. He's been putting himself up, and he's been putting others down, but I'll tell you something, when I come, I'm going to deal with his sin. Imagine the authority of an apostle in those days where an apostle could walk in 
and spot a problem in a church and deal with it as an individual. He didn't have to go through the red tape of a board or anything of that nature. Boy, there was quick justice in those days. And John warns him, I'm coming. And when I come, you don't know when I'm coming. When I'm coming, I'm going to deal with diatrophies. What was his problem? Phariseeism. You know what? He, he, he had such a prominent place in the church. He probably, he probably was one of the chief elders and probably was the best teacher of the bunch. And what would happen is that visiting evangelists would come through and they would cancel his class and put the visiting evangelist up there to, to speak. And Diotrephes didn't like to play second fiddle to anybody. And so he was conspiring to not give these fellows a place to live, telling people, if you keep this guy all night, then he's going to stay over Sunday. <laughs> if he stays over Sunday, he's going to take my class. All right, see how, see how it works out? And so if you refuse to give him hospitality, then he'll have to move on to the next town and we won't have to worry about it. And if you show him hospitality, I'm going to throw you out of the church. And John says, if there's any throwing out of the church, it's me that's going to do the throwing. And I'm going to throw out the troublemaker, Diotrephes, because he showed prejudice. You see how much the scripture has on this subject? I'm never going to get to my text, there's so much. I, would, I was just going to touch on the text and go, and that was it. But... I don't know whether I'm even going to get to it. I am right now. Luke chapter 18. Let's get back to it. And let's see how Christ illustrated this. Boy, time went by quickly, didn't it? When we begin to be, think we're something, then we're always looking down our nose at others. Now listen, there's no need for feeling ever. There's no need for ever feeling inferior. Don't ever feel inferior. On the other hand, don't ever feel superior. Okay? Let's have one mind in Christ. Now, there are similarities between these two men. Both were worshipers in the temple. Both prayed. Both hoped for an answer. Both acknowledged the true God. And both wanted to be justified before God. But that's where the similarities stop. Because the Pharisee was there to commend himself, to tell God how good he was. While the publican saw himself as a condemned sinner. And one received an answer, and the other didn't. And one was full of pride, the other full of penitence. One hoped in himself, the other one humbled himself. And the first of these, of course, was the Pharisee in verses 11 through 13. It's really also a short course in how to pray and how not to pray. You have his position, first of all. His position professionally was that he was a Pharisee, that position was one of distinction. It made him a ruler among the people of high rank and political scheme of Israel. He had power, he had authority, he probably had riches, certainly had prominence in the community. He was looked up to, he was admired by the masses and the multitudes would come to him for advice so that he could teach them. He was a teacher of the law, all right? He was the kind of guy you go to for this kind of purpose. And in the case of of uh, many of the Pharisees, there was, they were looked up to and admired for good, for good cause. They did a lot for their people in terms of teaching them the law and bringing all of life under the uh, canopy of the Torah or the law. But now, physically, notice what his position was here. Physically, it says he stood. Now, there's nothing wrong with standing while you pray, all right? In fact, it's one of the many postures that are used by godly men in their prayers. And God's not nearly as interested in what your physical posture happens to be as he is in what the state of the soul is. But strangely enough, the position of the body is indicative of the condition of the soul. I had a fellow come forward in a meeting one, one time and say that he wanted to receive Christ as Savior. Uh, I... Uh, was in this particular case in a prayer room with him at the end of the service. And I said, well, why don't we kneel right now and, uh, and talk to the Lord? Uh, he said, I'd prefer not to kneel. 
And I said, uh, well, personally, I, I like to kneel when we pray. I think it demonstrates a humble act. He says, I never kneel. I said, well, by this time, getting a little edgy, I said, uh, you never kneel. Are you willing to kneel before God? He said, I will not kneel. I said, uh, he said, I can be saved without kneeling. I said, well, you could have. But I don't think you can now. Because you've already cast down the gauntlet and dared God to make you kneel. I said, I'm not about to go through a hypocrisy and a form here. But I'll tell you this right now. When you have set your will against kneeling before a holy God, you have also set your soul. And there's no way I'll go through a form of uttering words. You come back when you're ready to kneel. The man got very angry, stomped out the door, and never came back. What was his problem? He was going to go through a form of making a commitment to God without bowing his will. His kneeling was a small thing. I agree. He doesn't have to kneel to be saved. It's like Finney. You know, a woman came forward in his meeting one time, came to him after the meeting, and said, Dr. Finney, I want you to know that when I'm ready to get saved, I don't have to come forward in one of your meetings. Finney looked at her and he said, you're probably right. You wouldn't have had to come forward in one of my meetings. But now, it's going to be totally necessary. Because it'll be the ultimate act of submission to God when you're willing to do that. And I think there's a lot to that. Hey, listen. You don't go into the kingdom of God giving God your terms. You come as a sinner with empty hands saying, I desperately need you. And in this case, the standing to pray was a symptom because the man's heart was not bowed. Literally, though, the word means having been placed. And the particular form of the word that's used here implies the striking of a pose. And what it is to strike a pose? Well, that's what a model does before the camera. Strike a pose. And this man was striking a pose. He had a special flair. You know, the way he prayed. And he put himself in that position in an ostentatious way. That's how he stood before God. He stood with his, with his heart proud. It's like the little boy that standing in the corner, uh, sitting in the corner. And uh, his dad comes home and says, what, what do you sit in the corner for? Your old mom made me. And he said to dad, he said, I want you to know. He said, I'm sitting here. But he says, I'm standing up inside. Well, a lot of people like that. And that's the way this man was. But then, after his position, notice his prayer. It's a prayer, first of all, of exclusion. It says he prayed with himself. That's all he prayed with. Because God wasn't paying any attention. With regard to iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. He's praying with himself. Literally, the King James translates it to himself. He's, the one, he's praying to himself. He's impressing himself. He's having one big party, you know. All happy here. And then, as well, he had a holier-than-thou attitude. Five times he uses the word I. I, 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 I. He had eye trouble. And then his prayer, his prayer could never reach heaven. You know, the, the Scripture says the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. But it doesn't say the effectual fervent prayer of a self-righteous man avails much. And then it's a prayer of exaltation. But it's not exalting God. It's exalting self. He's self-congratulating himself before God. God, I thank thee that I'm not like other people. And then he lists the sins that he's not committed. And he includes in the list, I'm not like this publican, which he happened to notice over in the corner. And then thirdly, it's a prayer of exhibition. It's a show-off prayer. It's a fancy prayer. It's putting his merit on display and at the same time putting the demerit of the publican on, on display with it. Now, you've got to understand Phariseeism. The Talmud says this, A true rabbi ought to thank God every day of his life that, one, he is not born a Gentile, 
Two, he is not born a publican. And three, he was not born a woman. Now that's a part of, of the Talmud. And uh, it gives kind of the attitude of the Pharisee. And then thirdly, notice his praise. There are two things to which he could lay claim, fasting and tithing. Both were noble, both required discipline and sacrifice, but neither could ever justify a man before God. The law required a fast once a year in the great day of atonement. The Pharisees had added all kinds of other fasts. They fasted twice in a week, every Monday and every Thursday, and they become ultra-legalistic about it. They gave their tithes, and they did so ostentatiously. His attitude was like the church of Laodicea, I have need of nothing. He didn't know that he was poor and miserable and blind and naked. So, you see, here is a man who is, who is justifying himself before God. There's something terribly missing from this prayer. And it's intercession. He, if he didn't have any need, goodness knows there were a lot of other people with needs, especially this publican over here. And if he didn't have anybody else to pray for, he could have prayed for the poor publican. But you see, here was a man who was so proud of his position that he was unwilling to even pray for others. Do you pray for the people in East San Jose and the people that are poor off than we have? you pray for the people that are out of work right now? Just because we're somewhat prosperous area doesn't mean that we shouldn't care for those that have needs. The publican, on the other hand, his position professionally was a publican, which was, meant he was despised and he was dishonest. He was a vassal of Rome. He took the people's money. He was a, he was a man that knew he was a sinner. You have to convince a publican he was a sinner. But physically, you'll notice that he stood too, but it was afar off, perhaps in a corner. In any event, it was away from the usual place of prayer. And there was a timid attitude here. He didn't presume that he had the rights of the Pharisee. But he did have something the Pharisee didn't have. He had the needs of a sinner. And God's mercy always assumes need on the part of the one that receives it. If you don't have a need, God's mercy isn't available. And this man prayed too. He gave seven words as compared to the 34 for the Pharisee. He called upon God, the one who is holy and must be appeased. And he cried, God, be merciful. God be propitiated. The, the word propitiated speaks of the blood being sprinkled on the mercy seat. God be propitiated to me, the sinner. He saw himself as being the sinner. If he was the only sinner in the world, he was the one who desperately needed God. And then you see his praise. There's none. Did you notice that? He didn't say, God, you ought to take me because I've got this and that and the I'm rich. He was rich, undoubtedly. But he didn't offer that to God. He simply throws himself on the mercy of God. Just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me, and that thou bidst me come to thee, O Lamb of God, I come. Verse 14 is the climax. One was justified, the other was not. The whole principle of exaltation, the pharisaical attitude, will never impress God. Remember Micah 6.8. He has told you, old man, what is good and what the Lord requires of you, that you do justice, that you show that you love kindness, and that you walk humbly with your God. That kind of humility is the thing that will really touch the heart of God. But you see, beloved friend, this Pharisee justified himself and had no care and no concern for others. Don't allow prejudice to come into your life. You know, over in, in the book of 1 Corinthians, I just want you to think of this one verse, 1 Corinthians 4 and verse 5. Listen to this, will you? Therefore do not go on passing judgment before the time. Uh, Bill Gothard's little thing, please be patient, God's not finished with me yet. <laughs> Don't judge before the time. It's not all over, folks. You haven't seen the finished product yet. You don't know what God will yet do through people. Don't despise others. Don't go on passing judgment. 
before the time, but wait until the Lord comes, who will bring, who both bring to light and things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts, and then each man's praise will come to him from who? God. From God. You don't pat people on the back and tell them how wonderful they are. God will do that. You better be careful telling people they're not so wonderful because God may be standing on the threshold of heaven ready to honor them. And every individual that refuses to honor God by honoring those that God loves is going to have to answer. One of the big keys to the book of Esther is this very fact. Haman was hanged on his own gallows because when he was asked, what would you do for a man who deserves honor in the kingdom? He said, why, I would exalt him and give him a parade. And they gave Mordecai a parade. And then, what would you do to the person who would do anything bad to the one that would be exalted. Well, I'd have him hanged. The problem was, the king was thinking of Mordecai all along. Haman was thinking of himself. And so Mordecai got the parade, and Haman got the gallows. And the day will come where that person who comes in in the coarse dress, the person who comes in with B.O., the person who comes in who... who is not of our culture and our group. And that individual who becomes an outcast by some, that individual will get the parade and you'll get the gallows. Beware of Phariseeism. Beware of prejudice. Love the brethren. Love one another. No matter who they are. Or what their need or what their problem tell you something, if we ever get to the place that we cannot embrace people with needs, we're out of business, folks. Because that's what this is all about. Let's us take leadership in caring for people that other people despise. Thank you, Father, for what we're able to learn about these things. Minister to our hearts, we pray. Oh, Father, we love you. We want to acknowledge your lordship over our lives. We ought to give you your due. Lord, help us not to despise you because we despise those you love. Help us to care for others. In Jesus' name, amen.